Support for Kansas City Today comes from Cleveland University, Kansas City. From its roots as a chiropractic college to new degree programs in health sciences, CUKC is educating healthcare professionals focused on next-level health. Learn more at cleveland.edu slash impact. Support also comes from Grandma's Catering. One bank teller instead of the usual five. Slow, fast food lines. Simply not enough staff. Grandma's Office Catering avoided the mass exodus with the respect, appreciation, better wages, and now health insurance. That's how Grandma continues to wow. Grandma'sCatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Friday, February 11th. Coming up, how some Missouri lawmakers are trying to keep guns away from people convicted of domestic abuse. Plus, volunteer firefighters in rural Kansas are struggling to respond to a rising number of calls. But first, some headlines. The head of a national Democratic organization says the group will challenge the Kansas congressional map approved by lawmakers this week over Governor Laura Kelly's veto. Jim McLean of the Kansas News Service has more. Former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder says the Democratic National Redistricting Committee will challenge the Kansas map in state court. He says the challenge will focus on the map's division of Wyandotte County. That split moved more than 100,000 of the county's voters, many of them people of color, out of the state's Kansas City area district into a more rural Republican district. Uh, Republicans diluted voices of the most populous and diverse region of the state uh, for partisan gain. And in doing so, they ignored both um, the will of the people and decades of precedent. Republicans in the Kansas legislature say the split was necessary to offset population growth in Johnson County. The challenge will be filed in Kansas because Democrats believe they have a better chance of prevailing here than in the U.S. Supreme Court. Kansas City is now offering free COVID-19 tests seven days a week. KCUR's Alex Smith reports. The clinic at Bruce R. Watkins Cultural Heritage Center is offering PCR COVID-19 tests every day from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Testing is available for all ages and appointments are recommended but not required. Both COVID cases and testing have dropped significantly in the Kansas City area since late January, but Missouri's high positivity rate suggests that many cases are being missed. The clinic will offer tests through March 1st. Kansas City officials have the next month and a half to debate and approve a nearly $2 billion budget that prioritizes public safety, housing, and neighborhood services. KCUR's Solisa Kolakal has more. The Kansas City Police Department budget takes up the biggest chunk of the budget at $269 million. That's up $8 million from last year and includes funding to support community policing, increased pay for officers, and hiring more police. The city's housing and neighborhood departments make up close to 5% of revenue. The overall $1.9 billion budget is up 9% from last year and will also support pay increases for city employees. The city council must approve the budget by March 24th. For years now, Missouri lawmakers have attempted to make it illegal for people convicted of domestic abuse to own or access firearms, with no success. This year, a Missouri Senator Lauren Arthur, a Democrat from Kansas City, is sponsoring a bill aimed at dealing with that issue. She and Annie Struby of the Rose Brooks Center spoke with KCUR's Steve Kraske on Up to Date. Well, Senator Arthur, help me here. I mean, federal law already prohibits people convicted of domestic abuse from possessing guns. So why is your legislation even needed? That's correct. So in 2016, Missouri lawmakers passed permitless carry, eliminating the requirement of criminal background checks and gun safety training classes. And as a result, there was no process to really catch convicted domestic abusers trying to buy a gun. 
Last year, uh, when Missouri Republicans passed the Second Amendment Preservation Act, or we call it SEPA, they made the problem worse by blocking local law enforcement agencies' ability to enforce that federal ban on convicted domestic abusers from having a gun. And as a result, we have this domestic violence loophole in our laws that allow convicted violent criminals to buy and keep guns. But we're gonna, the courts are going to weigh in now on this law that passed last year to determine whether it's constitutional or not. A lot of betting money out there that the law is not constitutional. I agree with that. I, I will say that, um, you know, many of my colleagues push for this kind of extreme legislation, thinking that the courts will strike it down or this bill won't do anything. But at the end of the day, it's bad policy that hurts Missourians. And even worse, just in terms of politics, it's never enough. The beast is never fully fed. So it feels like extremists are holding our state government hostage and they'll continue to pass for this bad legislation. Well, Annie, this issue, this notion that uh, men, mostly men we're talking about here, uh, convicted of domestic abuse, can carry around firearms, the idea of changing that will strike a lot of our listeners as a no-brainer. You've been working to pass something like this for several years. So why is this such a heavy lift? You know, we've been confused about that as well. This bill gets introduced, like you said, you know, it's been introduced multiple years, and it really just mirrors the federal legislation and gives our local law enforcement more tools to be able to enforce that, but we just can't ever quite get it across the finish line. Even where, you know, lots of other states have this legislation, including, you know, very gun-friendly states. So um, I think it's been frustrating and confusing for advocates as well. Um, But each year we're very hopeful. What is the resistance, Annie, as you go down to the Capitol? I believe you go down there sometimes and talk to lawmakers about this. What's the argument against what you're trying to do? The the main argument is that it's sort of a slippery slope, that any any sort of uh, chipping away at gun gun rights um, and the rights of of gun owners to, you know, purchase and possess those um, is seen as a threat, including those who have been convicted of domestic violence. But for us, it seems that if a court has already adjudicated this person, and if the court has already said, yes, this person is a danger, they've committed this crime, you know, particularly knowing that in these situations where there is domestic violence and a firearm, women in particular are five times more likely to be killed. Hmm. Um, it does seem like a no-brainer for us. And I, I don't really understand the arguments against it. Hmm. Senator Arthur, does Annie have it right? Are those who resist uh, your proposal here to change this law, are they concerned that it's going to be a slippery slope, that if you change this law, it's going to be open season on weakening the Second Amendment? I've heard a couple of things from my colleagues. Um, many, many of my Republican colleagues are ambitious and they're running for higher office or they plan to. And they've done a calculation that to win a Republican primary, they need to protect the gun rights of convicted domestic abusers over protecting the right of life to, uh, of hmm. domestic violence survivors. And they don't want to be perceived as restricting any gun rights of any individual, even if that person has hurt his wife or child. I would also add some of my colleagues, they claim that domestic violence misdemeanor doesn't rise to the level of seriousness that would merit banning someone from owning a gun. Um, You know, often people are charged with domestic violence felonies and they plead to a misdemeanor charge. Um, Also important to note that many of the crimes contained within the domestic violence misdemeanor category are still violent crimes and they would be considered felonies in a different context, which you could take another show Mm -hmm. discussing why that is. But 
um, you know, I, I guess ultimately the question is what amount of abuse of a family member is tolerable that would allow someone to own a firearm? And for me, you know, no, no amount of abuse is right. acceptable. Senator Arthur, uh, tell us a little more about what your legislation would do here. Sure. So um, my, my bill would do three things. It would make it a crime under Missouri law for anyone who's been convicted of domestic violence to possess or own a firearm. It allows courts to prohibit a person under a restraining order from having or buying a gun while the order is in effect. And it requires the courts to inform the Missouri State Highway Patrol and the FBI when a person's convicted of domestic assault. How long would those convicted of domestic violence be unable to buy a firearm under the bill you're pushing here? If someone commits and is convicted of domestic abuse, they forfeited their right to own a firearm. Um, And I think it's probably in the public's best interest that that person not have access to a lethal weapon. It's a permanent ban, you're saying? It would be a permanent ban, yeah. Mm -hmm. Annie, do these bills go far enough in your view? I think they're an excellent start. Um, You know, I work with people around the country in different states and some states um, that have had this law for several years. And what they have found is that the law that mirrors that federal law, so the one similar to what Senator Arthur has introduced, what it does is give them the tools and the basis to start making those um, policies and procedures, putting some um, those action steps into place um, to be able to remove firearms and make sure that those folks aren't getting firearms in the first place, aren't, aren't able to purchase more firearms once they're ineligible. Andy, we've sort of covered this, but maybe the point needs to be underscored here again. Just how important is it to remove guns from convicted domestic violence abusers? You know, we are talking to folks all the time at Rose Brooks on our hotline. Um, We get about 200 to 250 calls directly from police who are out in the field responding to these calls, and that's every month. And we know that, you know, half of those people have been threatened with a weapon, and about 60% of those abusers, so those most dangerous abusers just here in Kansas City, have access to firearms. So it's really important. We talk to women who have been, you know, shot, shot at, threatened with a weapon, and, you know, some, some abusers really like to have that just to display it as a measure of control for victims, even if they never actually fire that uh, weapon. So this is our, you know, these are our our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues here in Kansas City. Um, so it's really important. And I think it should be really personal to, to us here in Kansas City and across Missouri. Run this by me again. How does Missouri compare to other states when it comes to protecting domestic violence survivors from their abusers? There, there are multiple potential state laws that would protect uh, domestic violence survivors um, from firearm violence in particular. And Missouri actually has none of those, where even very gun-friendly states like Texas and, and some others that you would think of as you know pretty firearm-friendly and Second Amendment-friendly, that they have some of those laws. So that's why we're so hopeful each year that it, you know, it seems like there's a lot of common ground or there should be here. And so, um, like Senator Arthur, we're, we're hopeful each year. That was Democratic Missouri Senator Lauren Arthur, Annie Struby of the Rose Brooks Center, and KCUR's Steve Kraske. Across most of the country, if your house catches on fire, the first responders will likely be volunteers. About two-thirds of U.S. fire departments are all volunteer. Many of those have been stretched thin by declining volunteerism and mounting numbers of calls. Then came the pandemic. 
KCUR's Frank Morris reports from central Kansas. More than 250 square miles of freshly scorched earth stretch out in three directions from tiny Paradise, Kansas. In December, winds gusting up to 100 miles an hour pushed a wall of flames headlong across the rolling pasture here, torching farms and killing thousands of animals. Thick smoke, ash, and dust blocked out the sun. Volunteer Fire Chief Quentin Maupin thought he'd never see his kids again when the raging blaze suddenly swept across his fire truck. That wall of fire was, I don't know, probably 60, 80 feet high, and both hands on the steering wheel just holding on, thinking this is probably it, because you could hear the plastic melting and cracking, the stickers, the reflectors, the plastic flashing lights, it melted all that stuff on that truck. Muffin was alone in the 18,000-pound pumper truck, because like many rural fire departments, his is chronically short-staffed. It's it's tough. You know, it's it's rural Kansas, and there just isn't that many people out here anymore. And and young people, that's the other thing. And normally, our policy is you need two people on a truck. So if you have trouble, the other person can help out here or there. But that day, there wasn't anybody here, and I knew we just got to get a truck out there right now. Just keeping equipment running can be another challenge. A few miles away in the Natoma Volunteer Fire Station. District Chief Keith Kelly has a building full of clean but battered and aging red fire trucks. This is a 96. That over there is a 2002. This is a 96, our pumper. Kelly and his resourceful crew fix them as best they can, but just finding parts for these old trucks can be tough. I got a whole bunch of trucks that need to be traded out and they can't do it because I don't have the funding. And the trucks aren't the only thing aging here. The National Volunteer Fire Council says that in small-town volunteer fire departments, more than a third of the firefighters are over 50. Kelling is 62, and he says last month's hellish wildfire pushed him to the brink. I went to, um, right at 40 hours straight. Went to sleep for about four hours, and then I was back up and went for another 15. Come to find out I had COVID at the same time. I hit a brick wall, and I mean, I just had to quit. I just shut down. I'm too old for that. Volunteer firefighters aren't just getting older. They're also getting scarce. The National Volunteer Fire Council's most recent count shows a 17% drop in the number of volunteer firefighters since 1984. The calls for service have more than tripled in that time. Eric Bernard directs volunteer fire and rescue operations in Montgomery County, Maryland, where some 1,500 volunteers work alongside more than a 1,000 career firefighters and paramedics. It used to be pretty simple. If you had a, a crime going on, you called the police. If there was fire, you'd call the fire department. But fire department now does everything. We call it all hazards. So hazardous materials to electrical, water issues. A hazard for firefighters is COVID-19. Bernard says that Rockville Volunteer Deputy Fire Chief Scott Emmons helped evacuate injured police officers from the U.S. Capitol on January 6th last year. A couple of weeks later, he tested positive for COVID, and then he died. We had to put on a departmental funeral to say goodbye to a 48-year-old. That's what COVID did to us. The National Volunteer Fire Council says that COVID has killed about 100 volunteer firefighters. Many contracted the disease on calls. The pandemic's also hitting volunteer fire department budgets. Fire Chief Jennifer Williams in rural Chickasaw County, Mississippi, says COVID has scrambled the department's revenue stream. Typical 
volunteer fundraising activities, you know, you sell plates or you have a luncheon. You really can't do that with COVID. People don't want to gather. Williams is having trouble just replacing worn out fire hoses and protective clothing. That makes fighting fires even more dangerous and doesn't do much for recruitment or retention, especially during a pandemic. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Frank Morris. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This podcast is produced by Byron Love and Trevor Grandin and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read Frank's story about firefighters, visit KCUR.org, where you can also find a live stream of Kansas City's NPR station. On Monday, we'll feature our weekly roundup of what's new in the Kansas and Missouri legislatures. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.